0: A Pod Forte Podcast.
1: The Next CMO Podcast explores topics that are on the minds of forward thinking marketing executives, from leadership and strategy to emerging technologies. And we bring these topics to life by interviewing leading experts in their fields. The Next CMO is sponsored by Plana, makers of the world's first AI-based marketing leadership platform, and hosted by me, Peter Mahoney, the founder and CEO of Plana, along with my co-host, Kelsey Kraft. In this episode of The Next CMO Podcast, we speak to Denise Brody, the Chief Marketing Officer at Appian Corporation. Denise has an incredible personal story. She was a refugee from Vietnam, ended up going to Virginia Tech, and ultimately became a senior executive for global companies like SAP and Appian as the chief marketing officer. Denise tells us about her marketing strategy to build a community of developers around the world using Appian's no-code, low-code tools and how she's been able to connect that to enable large enterprise sales through her marketing efforts. I hope you enjoy the show.
2: Thank you so much, Denise, for joining the Next CMO podcast. We're super excited to have you on the show this afternoon. Would love to learn a little bit more about you and what you do at Appian.
0: Well, first of all, Kelsey and Peter, thank you so much for having me. Why don't I just start by introducing myself and then I'll introduce Appian. So I have been a B2B CMO for the last, or I should say in marketing, for the last 25 years. Working in everything from startup, came from a startup called Top Tier that got acquired into SAP, was in SAP for 15 years. After that, did a private equity turnaround, five years And then came to Appian, but probably a fun nugget that is probably very atypical of the CMO journey. I started my first five years in consulting, programming. Yes, you heard it correctly, programming and into what is called the ABAP language or SAP. And I thought it was a perfect ending to my career for 25 years to come to Appian because Appian is, you know, focused on low code. And if you think, I think about my journey 25 years ago that got me into tech. And this was all led by learning COBOL in college. I mean, talk about a crazy thing to learn, you know, in the 90s, getting your first job into tech and then coming to now into Appian where our sole purpose is to take everything from, you know, helping people move from high code development to dragging and dropping and literally creating code and expediting the development process for enterprise companies. So what we're doing is not about, you know, creating Wordle or an app that a consumer would use, but really through the enterprise, uh, being able to come in and support, whether it's a Santander or a Citibank or, you know, Goldman or even, let's say, a Mark or Pfizer. So really large companies all around the world.
1: Well, it's an amazing background, Denise, and I, I think a couple of things really resonated with me. So one thing that gave me a little bit of a chuckle was the fact that you were using in consulting COBOL in the 1990s, because if if people were watching the visual along with hearing the audio, they'd realize that I'm significantly older than Denise is. And, and back in the 1980s, when I was going out and doing my first job, we were doing the same thing. And in the 1980s, I, I almost took a job at, at the time, what was called Anderson Consulting. Oh, yes. Uh, I remember Anderson. Yeah, yeah. And they, they had to do a rebrand for some interesting reasons. And, and of course, back then they were saying, don't worry, we know COBOL is ancient, but there's all this tech debt that's sitting in enterprises around the globe. And, and we're going and retiring tech debt in, in writing code and in automating elements of what's going on. And this was now, you know, 35 plus years ago. So it's amazing how things have changed and yet they haven't. And it's incredible uh, what you have all done at, at Appian to go after that problem, because we know that even all these decades later, there's still a huge amount of business process that is unautomated, and, and it feels like it's just a massive market. So give give people a little bit of a sense of the scale of Appian. It's, it's a big, successful company now. So help us understand, for those who are not as close to your story, when the company was founded, how big is it now, uh, and things like that.
0: Yeah, so Appian is, believe it or not, a 23-year-old company. I always love to describe Appian as we're not a startup. You know, of 20 people sitting in a garage, we're not a large company, like, or as you say, mature company, like an SAP, Oracle, but we're in what I call a scale up. And in the scale up, I always like to describe us as organized chaos. So if you love the agility of being in a startup type profile, right, in a scale up, but at the same time, you're also okay to not have every single process defined, not have your schedule set so that you're coming in to do a to-do list every day. For us, I really look at it as we're flying the plane, we're fueling the plane, and we're completely okay to take a pit stop in Florida and not announce it. So it is a lot of fun, but you have to be okay that we're in scale-up mode. So not everything is defined. And that's why I say organized chaos. But it is... Yes, yeah, so a- obviously... <laughs> Sorry, it is an yeah. a you know, growth mode as well, right? So for us, we're growing our SaaS anywhere from, you know, 30 to 40% on an annual basis.
1: Yeah, and I've seen, I actually went through some of your investor material before the call to get a sense, because uh, of course it's a public company now and there's, uh, there, there's a, a lot of interesting stuff. And when you laser in on, on that SaaS business, it's obviously grown a great deal. But it's, of course, quite different from the 15 years that you spent at, at the behemoth that is <laughs> SAP. And uh, you had a very interesting role there where, where you were sort of the, the COO for the industry group, if I said that correctly. So t- tell us a little bit about what that meant and how that informed your role as a CMO later in your career.
0: Sure. So SAP was very different in the aspect. I came through a tiny little acquisition, a startup, you know, at top tier, we were 300 people. When I came into SAP, we were 32,000 people. And by the time I left, we were 100,000 people in the 15 years. And the journey was so much fun because it was an opportunity to help launch lots of new products, start new business areas it was like working within, you know, the startup side, but at the very end, and by the way, I would say that through my journey and probably a little bit of misnomer was that I had a CO title for Industry Cloud, which was about a 10 billion in service as well as software revenue. But I also had marketing communications responsibilities. And that was a little bit through my career, was that having the mix of the two. So I think, you know, when you're I was wearing this CO hat as well and doing everything from operational excellence to strategy it really helps you kind of think about the overall growth, right? And I think the, the biggest job we have as marketers is not just purely brand or demand or comms. It's really thinking about how do we fuel the growth of the company.
1: Yeah, And that strategy piece is really critical. And the idea of connecting the strategic world to operational execution is something that is a skill that most marketing leaders really struggle to fill within their organization. Uh, And having that background as an operational executive that you can combine with your expertise in marketing is really powerful. In fact, it reminded me that you asked me to ask you about this question, so I'll bring it up now, about talent. So in in this world, obviously, you're growing very fast. You're scaling up more than 30% a year at a pretty big base of a company, so it's growing quite quickly. How do you fill key talent roles inside a, a company like Appian right now as the, the the market for talent has gotten so tight these days with with things booming all around the planet?
0: I think the, you know, more traditional mindset as marketers is to hire people that have spent their entire career in marketing. And I think, you know, maybe I'm a little bit biased given my backgrounds, right? I think that part of the impact and being able to think of you know, us as growth marketers is having the ability to work other aspects of the business, whether, you know, as I mentioned, I started my journey in development, doing business development, where I actually carried a quota for a period of time, doing partner management. I ran support at some point. And I think sometimes it's also good to hire good athletes, people that may want to shift their careers, right? So if you get a great pre-sales person that is very product centric, that may want to come be part of product strategy or you get a good strategy person that may want to come do AR or you get a great person that is coming from industry but they've never worked in tech or even you know a great paid media person that has done b2c and then your our job is to shift them and teach them b2b as part of it and I think sometimes it's you know, depending on the profile, it's good to hire diverse backgrounds because it gives the team to be, you know, the ability to really be more impactful and to have different perspectives. You know, I, one of my favorite stories was when I was in the private equity side where I may not have the, you know, brand to go recruit somebody like when I was at SAP or even here because we're a publicly traded company. I remember, you know, offering somebody an internship that just graduated out of Chicago as an English major and didn't know anything around tech. I said, come be an intern, learn the tech piece if you like it. And by the way, we brought the person in as a content editor um, and contributor as part of that. And that English skill can be used across so much of you know tech as part of it. So I really think many times it's not necessarily having that CS background or that tech background. It's also taking chances you know for the talent pool and making sure that we hire that diversity because that diversity sometimes will create opportunities not only to do things differently but shift the the team as far as skill sets as part of this
1: so if you have that kind of talent, and I think it's a great strategy, Denise, to bring in sort of raw competencies and so these raw skills that you can develop over time, but they're there's this extra layer of requirement you have as a marketing leader to provide a roadmap for people for what they're actually supposed to do. Yeah. So if you come in and, and I, I remember spending times at larger companies when I was bringing in people on my staff, as an example, and I always wanted to hire people who are super experienced in a domain because I could just let that go and let them completely run that on the other side of the coin. There's the kind of people development that you're talking about, which is really important because it takes people who have raw talent, raw skill, but you need to tell them a little bit more about how to do that. So do you structure the marketing organization in a way that can actually support these people who may not be specific functional experts, but they've got the core set of skills that you need to develop over time. So how do you deal with that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I know at Appian, we actually developed a boarding track uniquely after my first year here, just to onboard marketers. So we have our own track to supplement the standard onboarding process. And I agree with you, Peter. I don't think that you can go hire 100% of every team where you get, you know, have only athletes, you need the mix of experience. And what I always ask the managers when they're hiring as part of this is not only is the person a cultural fit, but do they have have the time to coach, right? And to mentor the individual and bring them in as part of this. You know, what I've also seen as part of just the recruiting process during the great resignation, and I've been pretty adamant with the team. I meet every person that goes through the interview process. And a lot of that is just to make sure, one, there's a cultural fit, two, there's potential as part of, you know, depending on the person's background, or am I interviewing for their domain expertise as part of this? You know, last year it took us about nine months to find the lead of digital. But there were lots of folks that hired that never did the full stack digital. And we were not in a situation where I had the capacity to go and mentor and coach somebody that only had one subdomain of digital. So we held out and spent the time and searched for somebody that had the full stack of the digital experience. So I think you really have to kind of weigh in where you are in the cycle from a hiring perspective what you the mix of the team and then of course you know I always tell people like when it comes to careers right it's you've got to find people in order to you know have a thriving career you need two components for me it's very simple you need to uh, figure out what you're good at and what you're passionate about just because you're good at something doesn't mean you're passionate about it and if everybody apply that you, you see people's passions as you're working with them and i think that's the the question that every manager and leader has to ask is you know do i have the time and does the person have the passion and the potential to do that particular role
1: amazing and you're absolutely right that combination is incredibly important to have uh and and it, it's it's sometimes frustrating when you see people who have incredible talent but just aren't, aren't that into it i know it's one of my daughters is an amazing artist and she she just doesn't want to lean in. She doesn't want to do anything with it, which is kind of funny. And and it's frightening. I feel like, oh my god, it, I could if if I could have five percent of that talent, it's amazing what you'd be able to do. But you really need those combination those combination of factors to uh, make things work, which is great. So I was going to ask you another thing too, Denise, and it was about, again, I'm kind of a nerd like this. So I went through your your last full annual report, which was your 2020 fiscal year. And and one of the things that your founder and, I think founder and CEO is Matt Calkins. Is that's that right? Correct. Is he the founder? That's correct. Yeah. And one that's amazing that he's here 23 years later, I mean, leading for almost a quarter century. He probably doesn't like when I say that, that it's been a quarter century, but. A long time, and and one of the things he talked about was this amazing shift that's going on in the world, and I'm sure that was written sort of in the in the heart of the heat of the pandemic. But one of the things he talked about was the importance of explaining the benefits of the low code promise to the industry and the public, um, and and that was right around the time that I think you joined the company. So one, I'd love to understand has that maintained as a priority for the company, and and if it has. How specifically have you tried to address that particular objective?
0: Yeah, by the way, when we're collecting uh, our customer stories, and I really feel that the heart of everything you do as a market, if you're going to drive the growth, you have to have the customer stories. And the customers should advocate on your behalf and spread that, whether it be with media, with you know the analyst community or partners and the overall market. And when we look at every customer story, it's all around the low-code promise, Do we deliver the app or the automation or the process optimization 10 times faster than traditional development? Do we come in and have a 50% ROI as part of the overall low-code promise for whatever part of the suite the customer is adopting? And then the last part is, do we offer superior functionality? Right. So we just had our Appian world, and I love what you know, one of our um, customers, which you wouldn't think is a traditional one, LiUNA, they are coming in, they're managing unions as part of this. And when they started the journey with us 12 years ago, what I loved is they said, look, they could create all sorts of, you know, apps to help all of the different 300 regional representatives do their jobs better and think about the end user experience. They had everything from spreadsheets to Excel to legacy, all stuff they were tying. And then, you know, as they continue their journey for the 12 years, they were coming in and leveraging everything that we acquire. And part of our strategy is also a little bit different because when we acquire companies, we don't leave them in standalone. We actually fully integrate them into the Appian platform as part of it. So if you want to leverage automation, whether it's RPA or IDP or process optimization or discovery with process mining, we acquire companies and we fully integrate it. And as Laguna has gone through the journey, they have started to leverage the automation. They have started to come in and they started to, they're one of our biggest beta customers. And they joke about it that, you know, if, we're, if we have a beta, they will beta anything from Appian. And as part of this, they put their portal solution in and they said, wow, just the ability to do the B2C they have now, they're able to move beyond communicating to just 300 know, office directors to now all 450,000 of the folks that are part of any unions that they are supporting as part of this. So it's quite amazing to see that. And when I think about the impact, right? If you're creating superior functionality and you think about, hey, you just went from 300 users to potentially impacting 450,000 users by just adding one Feature and functionality, that just says it all, right? Because it's it's putting really the the users and the user experience in the middle of everything that we do, the customer first uh, mindset.
2: So Denise, one thing that I that really stood out to me is as a CMO, you have this you know strategic drive to bring the company to the next level, whether it's a new product release, yeah. it's new. You know, new branding. If it's new messaging, if it's a new target audience, whatever it is, you're trying to bring the company to new growth. So, what are some of those challenges that you have faced as a CMO that you can help you know our listeners overcome? Yeah,
0: absolutely. I think you have to think about how do you tell the brand story and humanize it. Right, Appian is a very technical product as part of this, but. One of the things that we're really working to do is to humanize the brand. So last week, as part of the Appian World launch, we just launched the hashtag low code for all with the number four on it. And this is like very close to my heart, because when I think about my own background and being a refugee and immigrant, I just think about, wow, what the ch- what were the chances of going to college, getting some, you know, coal, the COBOL background and then getting entry into tech So we launched the low code for all to provide scholarships to anyone that has financial barriers that want to learn low code. We will pay for the certification as part of that. And when I think about humanizing the brand, whether you're triangulating that with like a CSR initiative, like low code for all, it's so important to think about, you know, what we give back as part of the community and I think that these ideas and the stories only come to life if you really care about them. And so I think as a CMO, anyone that is part of marketing, you have to do the stuff that you care about. You're, you shouldn't just do the check marks, right? If you're coming in advertising, let's say, into maybe a journal that or a feature that you may not care about, it may have a different outcome Like than doing something like low-code as part of this. Because for us... And for me personally, I don't look at the launch as the end, it's a start. And the question is, how many people do we place into tech jobs where we change a social economic outcome, right? So if somebody coming into low code in the U.S. alone, their first year with a certification will make 70000 U.S. dollars. If we can change the lives of veterans, of college students, of people that have been displaced during the pandemic, it just took the entire CSR initiative and then turned that into for us something meaningful and then humanizing the brand on top of that so that's just an example and I think that like my advice is think about some stuff that you really care about and figure out how to tell that with the integrated story of the company
1: well, it's, it's amazing. And, and it's amazing how we didn't go into that detail of your, of your personal story, which is, of course, pretty amazing. So tell us a little bit about how, how you got here. I mean, the, the fact that that you you started your your journey as, as a refugee. How, how did you get from that to the CMO of a large, successful public company?
0: Yeah, so in 1979, my mother and brother escaped from Vietnam. By the way, I actually had two other siblings that I didn't meet until I was 21. And if you follow anything in the Vietnam War, the borders shut until 1983. So the only way to get out is through the escape. So for me personally, today, when I'm looking at the refugee situation going on in the world, is very close to my heart, right? Because I feel very fortunate to have gotten out of Vietnam, my mother had an eighth grade education. So had I stayed in Vietnam, I probably would have grew up in the countryside, be selling some food on the side, making, you know, probably $300 a year as part of it and no opportunity to go to school, especially as... A, and then just coming to the U.S., the ability to learn, go to school, create, you know, your own independence as part of it. has just been so much fun and rewarding and, you know, the... Literally, I see life in the U.S. as really endless opportunities. I think the only thing that stops us is our, you know, mindset, right? And I say that because, you know, I grew up on the welfare system and I just remember My journey with my mother and brother until she remarried, we lived below poverty, but we had a lot of, you know, family around us and a lot of support as part of that. And I just think that, you know, there's just the opportunities sometimes are just untapped and maybe it's also the luck of not knowing what was a part of the bigger world, right? So for me, I really didn't know that there was any failure because I didn't have very much growing up.
1: Well, it's, it's an incredible story and, and a great illustration of the potential that's all over the place, if you think about it, and the potential that you're trying to unleash with this low code for all, did I say that right? Yes, sir. Initiative, which is amazing. And and it, it's, you know, again, going back to the compelling connection to your brand story, obviously, you know, low code has lots of benefits and it's exciting from its productivity, But the idea that you can think about lifting up people from, from poverty, from a difficult situation into, to sort of a a new level is, is just amazing and a great way to, to really talk about sort of the, the really, the much bigger impact that you can potentially have with, with your brand prompt, which is, which is pretty amazing. So, so thanks for sharing your, your background there. And I'm excited to see how this, how this program goes. And I know you you also have a so there's there's of course a, a free tier of of your platform right so people can start and just develop low code apps independently so do you have like a whole network of people all around the globe who who are Appian you know developers and experts who who can uh, then sort of be unleashed as this mighty army to go automate all those awful COBOL coded applications all around the world?
0: Yeah, absolutely. The fun part is our community investment has been something that we have heavily focused on in the last year. And we've had over 130% growth as part of the community. And by the way, we have what we call a free forever as part of uh, the ACE or the Appian community edition. So you can come in and set up a trial environment. And anytime that we release incremental features or acquire a company, We are committed to making that available as part of the free forever environment. And in the last, I would say, what, six months since we launched it, besides the members, we've had over 15,000 trials that have been set up where partners are playing around with the customers. And, you know, the amazing part is not only can you build the app, but you can decide that, hey, once you finish the trial And let's say in two months, you actually want to become a uh, move from a prospect to the customer, we can come in and export all of the information and code, quote unquote, and help you go productive as part of it. So I think that for many of our customers, this is the new way, right? No longer does somebody have to sit in IT and wait six to nine months before they can turn around to a business user and say, hey, let me show you what a prototype could look like. You could probably come up with a prototype in a couple of hours.
1: So it's, it's really interesting that you've applied this strategy of leveraging and building a community for your marketing, because I'd imagine that it can be fairly complex to actually find and target the right individuals for a product like Appian that, of course, can be maybe someone in IT, maybe it's a business user, and I'm using air quotes for those people yeah. who don't see me. Like, what in the world is a business user? That always cracks me up. It's anyone. So how, how do you do that? So we understand how you engage with a with community and you create this sort of groundswell of expertise, which is amazing. In fact, we've had a lot of success. We, we built uh, the next CMO community, which is a current and aspiring CMO community that so people should check it out. And we have a link in our show notes for that too. And, and that's one of the ways that we you know, get people who uh, are excited about these kind of operational marketing topics that we advocate as the company planner, right? So that's, that's why we, we focus on that. But tell me beyond that, what are the strategies that you're using to target a very diverse audience to, to become ultimately prospects or customers of Appian?
0: Yeah. So I think traditionally, when you think about, you know, building on a platform, right, there is this preconceived notion that you need to have purely a STEM background I would actually say that it's more of a scene background. Even the A in there, if you look at books that are, you know, have backgrounds in music, philosophy, by the way, if they're logical, they can come in and learn, you know, the low-code platform is part of it. And what we love and what we have packaged as part of the community is you're not going to come in and just play with the trial. but we have guided training as part of this. We have certification. We are spending time to get consultants and anyone that is interested in learning through the different tiers as part of the certification. So they may come in and learn low-code ready, which is the first start, and they know nothing around low-code right? versus becoming project ready. So how do you get onto a project as part of that? And I think it's that nurturing of the community that is so critical. As, you know, Kelsey, Peter, you know this. And, and on the marketing front, you're applying all the marketing tactics that you would in a B2B. So for us, having interesting paid media tactics where we are going after developer marketing, we're going after you know, certain outlets where you're getting to the de- developers, you're getting to the media or to the folks that may have this team background as part of this, recruiting off of universities. There's so many outlets and channels. And we've even, you know, started to experiment with micro influencers that are going through, you know, TikTok, Instagram. So the interesting part is typically when you think about B2B marketing, People are thinking, "Oh, I need to go through LinkedIn, or I need to, you know, go through Twitter to do the to execute the paid media plan." But now there are so many, you know, influencers, developers, business people that are on other platforms as part of it. So I think the sky's the limit and I would, you know, our goal really is to even further the number of folks that we have in the community, but it's all nurturing. You know, we run everything from hackathons to live build challenges. We just had a live build challenge last week where we asked some, you know, six contestants to come in and build off of an ESG scenario. And by the way, they win $10,000 and if they can't take the money, we would love them to donate it as part of it. So there's just so many ways to engage the community. And in order to grow, you have to have the engagement. If you don't have the engagement, you need to treat each one of the community members as if you're creating fan engagement.
1: So connect the dots for me then, because you've got this amazing set of campaigns uh, that are designed to engage the developer community. At the same time, I know looking at your latest investor presentation, You've seen huge growth in the number of million dollar plus clients, which is pretty incredible. And so how, how do you do both? Because you're engaging sort of this groundswell of developers in a community, which I think is really important. But then how do you support the marketing for very large enterprise sales at the same time?
0: Yeah, don't forget the folks that are part of the community that may be developers, business technologists users of the platform, they're also part of the customer base. And in order to do that, you need to execute well on a land and expand, right? I loved it last year, we had in a bank in APJ, where they started as a prospect, they come into our website, they download a white paper on cloud security, it wasn't like they're downloading, you know, a buyer's guide or something, they went after a very technical piece. And then within 12 days, they became a qualified opportunity as part of it and then we take them through the cycle. So for 6 months we do we, we do about a 200k deal by the end of the year they're over a million dollars with us as part of the Atlanta and expand. And just like anything else when you're, you know, part of the Atlanta expand, it's to figure out how do you show value? How do you create that value selling so that the customers can understand You know, for the app that I deployed, I got a fifty percent return. And how does that impact the user? And then how does that expansion happen as part of that? And it can be everything from you know landing and expanding within an organization to acquisitions to thinking about the profiles that we go after as well.
1: It it makes a lot of sense, and I mean, it's an amazing story. Going from a a a white paper to a, a million dollars of recurring revenue is 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 pretty incredible. The the big question though is that you've got to make it at some point you go from you you've created this very very low hurdle for people to jump over at the beginning yeah. you make it really easy for people to go and say I'm gonna download I'm gonna experiment with that I'm gonna build a little app I'm gonna enable education to make sure all this stuff happens there's a very little step at some point maybe you have people developing a little app or two for something sort of, sort of simple. And then you've got to get to this point where you get someone to make a pretty broad business decision that says, hey, I've got some success in this thing. How do I take this and translate that into maybe a broader company strategy? Because ultimately, I assume to get a million-dollar customer, as an example, it has to be a really important part of their IT strategy that they're going to use this no-code, low-code platform to to enable lots of different applications over time. That That's, I suspect, how it grows. Yeah. So how do you, as the chief marketer, enable that transition?
0: Yeah, and I think we're very fortunate because our product offering is not just on building apps, right? It's a complete integrated suite. So as a customer is starting their journey, they may start out by building the app, but they may have other things. So for example, in the Lyona example that I talked about, the ability now to move from 300 users to 450,000 users with something like a portal solution where it's B2C and automating an event registration. Or, you know, if you think about even so, if you go into, let's say, the IRS website, you may come in and check your, oh, how much estimated taxes did I pay? But once you have a dispute, you got to upload a lot of documentation. And we have a way to process all of that unstructured documents as well. So I think that because the breadth of our offering is more than just building apps, building apps may just be the entry. And then the question is, how do we automate the rest of the enterprise workflow? How do we help them, you know, come in and leverage their legacy apps, our legacy systems without replacing them? and using like something like low-code data as part of it. So we have to market to not only IT, but the business and balance that as part of the land and expand. And as mentioned, you know, nobody comes in and implements software for the sake of it. They are looking at solving a business problem. They are thinking about the business outcome and thinking about how do they solve those problems. And that's what we're going after. We're going after, you know, do you have the the need to ingest tons of, you know, documents and process through that, through our workflow. And those use cases are what we're working with customers around for as part of the land and expand.
1: Great. That's amazing. So believe it or not, we're, we're just about at the end of our time uh, and it's been a, a really great conversation, Denise. It's been, it's been really insightful to to hear about your strategies, really inspirational to hear about your personal story. And and I think before we go, we have one last question that Kelsey will bring up. And so take it away, Kelsey.
2: Yes, Denise, you're the perfect person for this question, obviously being in the CMO seat. So what advice would you give to those that are CMOs or aspiring to be one someday?
0: Yeah, if you're aspiring to be a CMO, work outside of the marketing department. See what other areas are focusing around this well, right? There was an opportunity through my career. And by the way, I'd never ran support, but I was was wearing a dual hat in my last role and I had the opportunity to run support for what, a year and a half. And I thought it was so interesting when I was getting the support tickets, I wanted to figure out, are there problems that we are solving that through our messaging and positioning? And I would ask the marketers, go read the support tickets and see as part of this. And I would encourage them, go spend half a day with somebody sitting and support and seeing what their day in life is, because it's going to make you a better marketer. I think if you have the opportunity to work anywhere across the business, outside of pure core marketing, it will make you stronger as part of, you know, being able to think about the growth of the company, thinking about the strategy, thinking about how you would even experiment. Because I think many times as marketers, we get a set budget and we're coming in and we're applying it to the tactics. But think about how often you actually put a set of budget over for experimentation. I always try to keep at least 5 to 10% of the budget around experimentation or ad hoc projects because sometimes we'll run something for three months or fail miserably, but it's fine. It's okay to fail. And I think that experience of working in other areas of the business and having that growth mindset just has enabled me um, to really apply things differently. And I would really give anyone advice that wants to sit in the CMO seat to really think through, like how do you create that opportunity for yourself?
2: Well, I love that. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Denise. Make sure to follow the next CMO and Plana on Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you have any ideas for topics or guests, you can email us at thenextcmo at planner.com. Have a great day, everyone.
1: Thanks, Denise. Pod Forte Podcast.